Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Uh, this episode, we don't have a clever, witty intro. Um, maybe some of you are exhaling a sigh of relief. No. We tried. We, we, we had several bad takes. Yeah, actually, we're, we're in minute five of our raw audio recording, and we still don't have one. So we're just going to say you are listening to Linear Digressions. And today, we're going to talk about item response theory. Item response theory. Boring name, interesting topic. <laughs> it's a uh, a field within psychometrics, and psychometrics is the measurement of the sort of psychological type traits of people, usually. It also might be the coolest sounding name for a field ever. Yeah, I'll agree with that. That's a pretty good name for a field. One of the things that they're often trying to study in psychometrics is something like, how X is this person? How smart is this person? How angry as this person, how emotionally this or that is this person. Mm. So let's use the example of how smart is this person, because that's kind of the, the classical uh, use case. Right. And although, we, although we'll use that example for the rest of this episode, this could be applied to all sorts of other metrics. In psychometrics, one of the tools that you have available to you might be something like a multiple choice test. And in this multiple choice test, you have some questions that are easy, some questions that are medium, and some questions that are hard. If this is a test that's good at discriminating who's smart from who isn't, then the way that you want it to be set up, obviously, is that everyone or almost everyone gets the easy questions. The medium questions, you start to split people getting them right and people getting them wrong. And then the difficult questions, only the smartest people are getting right. And so a well-calibrated test in that sense is one that helps you distinguish or rank order people in a fairly precise way with respect to how smart they are in this example. An item response theory is a specific way for thinking about that within the context of uncertainty also about how difficult the test itself is. Because I don't necessarily know what's a easy, medium, or difficult question when I'm writing the test. I have some ideas, but it's not until I actually put a question out into the field and I start to see how often people get it wrong that I know how difficult it is. Right. It's kind of a calibration where you're taking the, the people you're testing and you see how well they do on the questions. And without that, you don't know. And at the same time, I also don't know how smart any given person is. And so I'm sort of, I have one equation with two unknowns, so to speak, how mm, difficult right. a question is, how smart a person is. However, if I have many questions and many people, then item response theory allows you to start uh, reconciling those two sort of unknowns with each other oh, and come up with a distribution of difficulty of questions and, and intelligence of people. So if you have a contrived example where you just have one person and one question, you don't know whether the person got the question wrong because they're not as, as smart in this particular field or because your question was too hard. Um, similarly, if they got it right, you don't know if it's because the person is super brilliant or because your question is super easy. But you're saying that if you take both sides of that equation, you, you multiply the number of people and you have uh, many more people and you have many more questions, that you end up with these distributions that you can reconcile. There's an exact mathematical form that usually this reconciling takes, which is a logistic function. So a logistic function is a specific type of, of mathematical distribution. It's one over one to the E plus stuff. And plus it has, stuff is that? <laughs> yeah, is that the, the that's usually where your parameters go. Um, <laughs> and the way that this, that this actually looks, the thing you should be imagining in your head, sometimes called an S-curve, 
it's bounded by zero on the low end and one on the high end. So you can think of it as it's very often used as a probability type model because you can't have probabilities that, low, that are lower than zero or higher than one. And then there's going to be this smooth turn on curve between uh, the asymptote at the low end. So you have everyone is a zero at the low end. Everyone is a one at the high end. And then there's this smooth curve that connects the two of them. And so in this case, it takes the same kind of curvy shape as an S, where, where you have the steepest part of the graph being right in the middle. Yeah. And so I can think about every question on my test as sort of corresponding to its own S-curve. And the parameters of my logistic tell me exactly how difficult it is and how well it sorts people into either the smart or not smart bucket. So in the low end, where I have a bunch of zeros, you can imagine these as being all the people who aren't very intelligent. They're missing this question and sort of the probability of them missing this question is going to be very high because the question is hard and they're not smart. Then you start to get a turn on curve where as people get more intelligent, there's this increasing chance that they're going to get the question right. And then the question is not infinitely hard. So the extremely smart people um, are all the ones on the right side and they're all able to get the question correct. And so depending on how steep that turn on curve is and exactly where it is along the x-axis, I can make a fairly precise statement about how difficult is this question, that's how far it is left to right, and how good is it at discriminating people from each other. Is the turn on curve gentle or is it sharp? Right, so all of the questions in your set would have a graph all to themselves. Mm -hmm. And usually I should also add, in the example of a multiple choice question, there's usually a third parameter in this model, which is the probability that you could get it right just from randomly guessing, which can mm. introduce some noise. You know, on something like the SAT or the GRE, there's usually four or five answers. One of them is correct. And so just by randomly guessing, you could still get 20 or 25% correct. So you have to take that into account into these questions. But then once you have many, many people who've answered this question, you'll start to get an idea of how difficult it is. And you can fit it with, again, one of these uh, logistic curves and get an idea of how, uh, of is this particular question something that is a middle of the road question? Is this an easy question? Or is this a question that only the smartest people get right? And then you can also, for all the people in your survey, you can say, are you getting all of the questions right, some of the questions, or there's only a few questions that you're getting correct, and you can start to get an idea and how difficult are those questions. And from that, you can start to very precisely place people on something like a ranked scale relative to each other. This person gets lots of questions right, but there were a few places where they missed the questions, which are the very most difficult ones. And so I can put them very precisely on a ranking relative to the other people. So can we bring this theory and kind of apply it to, to a real world scenario? You know, like standardized testing is a great example of this. Yeah, I, you never had to take the GRE, did you? I did not. Okay. Well, I took this when I was going through the grad school admissions process. So is the GRE just like all of the others, the SAT and, and whatever, you sit down in front of a pencil with pencil and paper and you fill out a Scantron thing? No. Well, uh, yes, it, it asks similar questions, but structurally, no, no pencil, no paper. And oh, that is very important. Oh, so it's on the computer. It's on a computer. And so what the GRE is able to do is they have, this is the way the GRE actually works is they have uh, this item response theory sort of underneath the scoring mechanism of the test. And so based on the questions that you are getting right, 
It has a bunch of historical information about whether other people have gotten them right in the past. So it has some idea of what's a difficult question. And if you're getting all of the questions right, it's going to start feeding you harder and harder questions because it needs to figure out if you are 95th percentile or 98th percentile. And the difference between those two, you have to really start to drill down on the hardest questions to figure out who's who's just regular smart and who's really, really smart. Oh, and that's so fascinating. That's what the GRE does, is it has this feedback mechanism that it will send you questions that are as precisely as possible tailored to the ability that it thinks you have so that it can be, come up with a very refined estimate of, of what your score should be. So as a web developer, this makes me think of a binary search or any other kind of search where you take a large data set, usually ordered, and then you cut it in half and you search one half. And if it's in that half, then you can cut it in half again. And then if it's basically you take this data set and you keep chopping it up in half and you choose the left or the right bucket. And then you take whatever bucket you chose, you chop it in half and you choose the left or the right bucket. And then you take whatever bucket you chose from that and you do the same thing over and over again. And that lets you very, very quickly narrow in on the number that you're looking for. And so, uh, I guess the reason it makes me think of it is because in this case, you've got a whole bunch of people taking tests. And for any individual taking a test, you give them a question. And if it's too hard, then you bring it down. You, you give them an easier question. If it's too easy, then you give them a harder question. And as you do that, it allows you to narrow in on where in this distribution they fall. So you can figure out uh, relatively quickly because your search space gets smaller and smaller exactly where in the distribution they fall and you can get a, a much more precise answer for where they are. I'm thinking of this chapter I was reading in an information theory book a little while ago and it was talking about there's a similar question you have 12 marbles they look the same but one of them is a different weight than the other ones and it's either heavier or lighter you don't know which right. and what's the and you have a scale that has two sides to it what's the minimum number of weights that you can make you know, different permutations of which marbles to weigh and how many and, and so on. Uh, what's the minimum number of weights that you have to make in order to come up with the answer to those two questions, which is the odd one and is it heavier or lighter? And from an information theory perspective, the way that you minimize that is by trying to, f is by finding the ways of splitting up the marbles so that the groups are as equal sized as possible. So a binary search is, is completely optimized from yeah. an, an information theory perspective because it's splitting things into equal size groups. And so yeah, I think that's really cool that you have sort of this intuition in terms of if you're talking to someone and you're trying to get an idea of how smart they are, you ask them increasingly difficult questions, but it's also backed up by the computer science theory and by the information theory and by the item response theory and blah, blah, blah. It's all the same idea of trying to get information out as quickly and efficiently as possible. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.